Hello there and welcome to another episode of Inside McLaren Applied. My name is James Baldwin and along with Freya Brolsma, we chat with McLaren Applied's Head of Electrification, Dr. Stephen Lambert. We speak about the future of automotive and the significant role that McLaren Applied is playing in present and future technological developments in the industry. Let's get into it. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You have an incredible resume, but you have an incredible title. It's a very exciting title. And I need to know, how does one become the head of electrification? What have you electrified recently? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, thank you. Um, Yeah, good question. Well, actually, not a lot recently. The last few years have been um, around some product development that McLaren applied. And actually, a bit different to the rest of my career, has more been around uh, developing our future-focused products and starting to get new products out into market. And so hopefully now in the next couple of years, we will start electrifying lots. But recently, not a lot, but but, but in the past, um, a certain amount more, definitely. It's a very exciting time. Electrification, automotive, there's a lot happening through governments mandating certain things with uh, entrepreneurs making decisions on behalf of what seems like the entire planet to try and move things forward. But let's go back a little bit to your beginning and in university, what did you think the future would be in this space? That's a good question. So I remember actually when I was um, back in the early 2000s, I was doing my uh, my PhD and um, I remember thinking the future is likely to be a mix of electric and hybrid and there's not going to be one solution that works for everything. I think actually what we've seen now, um, and there'll be people that disagree, of course, is that actually the future is going to be fairly well electric. There'll be some use cases that aren't going to be some edge cases in uh, commercial vehicles, other large vehicles perhaps, Um but even so, they may well uh, certainly be hybrid, if not fuel cell hybrid. Um, but for mass uh, mass automotive, um, electrification and EVs is definitely the future. It's a very exciting time, as I said, in, in that automotive space. But many categories are technological showcases. In fact, we can name literally every version of motorsport right now that's on telly. Uh, it's sport and it also means it's entertainment too. Is motorsport then for you the right place for electrification systems to be developed? And do you see it as McLaren Applied's role in the motorsport space to bridge that gap, but then, of course, to bring that into the world of automotive? Yes, it's a great question. I think there's a lot in... There's a lot that motorsport can do and a lot that motorsport has done. Um, and actually, one of the best things, um, I think, that happened was back in, I'm going to get this wrong now, 2007, I think it was, when Formula One first went to Kurs. Um, actually, the, the FIA just said, you know what? And the organiser said, you know what? Have some sort of hybrid. We don't know what it'll be. It could be a flywheel. It could be hyd- hydraulic. It could be electric. Just, just go make some sort of some sort of hybrid, and there hadn't been that sort of openness in the regulations for a long time, and that drove a, a huge amount of innovation. Um, it then went away for a couple of years for a number of reasons. Um, it was perhaps a little bit too early and came back um, a couple of years later, two thousand nine, off the top of my head, but I need to check. Um, and and it was all all electric hybrids, um, but really it was it was a way of Formula One becoming more relevant to road cars. At that point, it lost its relevancy. And there, there was the old adage that uh, Formula One was more closely related to an aeroplane 
than than anything you might drive. Um, and so I think in that sense, Formula One has done a really good job in making its technology still the pinnacle of technology, absolutely, um, but making it more uh, relevant to road cars. And actually, you do start seeing some of the technology that was developed a few years ago in Formula One, if not the exact technology, but that technology starts to trickle down into, into mainstream road cars now. Um, so from a Formula One point of view, absolutely. The other side of it is, let's say, um, less cost or more cost com- competitive series. Um they need to, they're going to be based off automotive um, vehicles and automotive technology. So they'll tend to be a technology follower um, and the automotive industry will probably push down what happens in them. So we're starting to see more electric vehicle um, series coming along, um, such as Extreme E, such as Formula E. But we're seeing the push probably now from technology from automotive into those series. You mentioned that um, some of the more recent developments from a Formula One perspective are starting to become a bit more um, I suppose, related to, to the everyday cars that, that any one of us might drive. How quickly does that transition happen? What's the timeline from track to the road? I think it's really difficult to put a, to put a, a time on it. And it's not necessarily, you're not going to develop a widget in Formula One and then it'd be on a car two years later. It's, it's not going to quite happen like that. Um, certainly when I was in Formula One, I only had a brief career in Formula One. Um, we developed some battery technology um, and the same cells, the same makeup hasn't made its, its, its way into automotive, but actually the learning from that, how to control really high charge rates, high discharge rates, uh, how to package things effectively, how to cool things, all of these challenges when you push it to the, the edge of the envelope like you do in Formula One goes into the learning that then goes down into automotive. And you can see that with teams like Mercedes. Of course, they're aligned to their own automotive manufacturer, so that learning can can move down very easily. Um, to some extent, similar with, with McLaren, of course, we have our own car company and a Formula One team, so that technology can transfer there. Um, but it, it's more about knowledge and know-how probably than actual bits of technology. Okay, talk to us about the timeline then, because being on the track... Certain things can happen. For me, the big one was the flappy paddle gearbox, I think, that made it into the Ferrari, like the F360 back in the day of of going, wow, that's cool Formula 1 technology. Um, Motorsport has often justified itself for a long time as being this test bench. And in terms of then it going through how you look at different other technologies, does that relevance still exist in a lot of these different sports, as you said, there's automotive-led in the way that it used to, or does there need to be this revolution now in terms of a thinking from not only a fan point of view of how we see this, but from the manufacturers and OEMs as well? So I think it's definitely got to evolve. There's definitely an evolving relationship between what's happening in motorsport and what happens in automotive. Um, a great example of that, you could be look at Formula One and you say, okay, develop this hybrid technology and that, that trickles down and you can make that uh, that argument. And actually in, on your um, example, a great example is the McLaren P1, the world's first hybrid hypercar wasn't the same technology in a Formula One car, but it was definitely inspired by that. And, and that, Formula One showed what could happen. Um, but it definitely evolves. And so now we're seeing not necessarily the fact that hybrids and EVs can work, because that's that's what Formula One and Formula E to some extent were were trying to show, but actually getting into the detail. So a great example is, and, and probably not many people think about this, is actually Formula E and, and to some extent Formula One are very much uh, competition on efficiency. If you want to, if you want to win a Formula E race, ignoring the driver because that's the other thing that changes. <laughs> it's around efficiency and, and to some extent, drivability. Because the only difference in the cars is the drivetrain, and the way to get 
um, better performance, is to be more efficient because you get more energy that you can use for actually going forwards. That's absolutely relevant now for automotive because efficiency is going to make better cars. You're going to be able to go longer on a charge or your battery will be smaller, so the car will be lighter, the vehicle will be more efficient. It'll take less time to charge to go a certain distance. Efficiency and possibly drivability in the future are going to be absolutely key. So that evolving relationship between motorsports and an automotive is always going to be there. It's interesting. Sorry, it's very interesting because I think it's a great point about this efficiency line because we don't get to hear that much about it. When we think back to Formula E, OG Formula E, it was like, let's change the car halfway through now. But the, the fact that the charging's better, Extreme E's doing charging with hydrogen generators out in the middle of nowhere, charging these batteries quite quickly for then the cars to go around the track again. Formula One's operating on this 1.6 litre engine is a very small amount of fuel used effectively for how many laps these cars are doing. But again, we're not really hearing much about it. From a fan point of view or from an outsider point of view, it's very rarely spoken about. So what is it that then we need to start making more aware in that space? Well, I think it's interesting. We look at how the technology has developed over the last five or ten years. The the low hanging fruit has been battery technology. And look at Formula E. You know, the, the first generation had two cars, um, and you had to swap the car halfway through because the battery technology wouldn't get there. Gen two, of course, McLaren applied provided the batteries for. Um, the battery wasn't double. We got rid of two cars, had one car, but the battery wasn't double the capacity of the previous capacity. Um, things had moved on in terms of efficiency. So we weren't able to halve the uh, size of the battery needed with efficiency. You're not going to get those sorts of gains. That, that's where battery technology needs to move on. But you might get a 10% gain and that's where you can go from a you know not needing a double battery to maybe a two-thirds or a three-quarter size of the battery to get the same distance if you if you work on efficiency in a number of areas and so it's slightly more marginal gains and it's not as easy to take it back to something like this is the range i will get but it's definitely going to have an impact in in mainstream automotive and it's going to make a better car, the more efficient. But it's difficult to quantify it in a in a really easy way, which is why it's difficult to probably translate it through to fans and, and buyers as well. So talking about mainstream um, automation then, where do you feel like we are on that road to full automotive electrification? There's obviously a number of models out there now, but the uptake is only so great. Um, where do you feel like we are on the on timeline to that? We're absolutely, I say this is my view, but I think the view of a lot of other people in the industry is we're absolutely at the tipping point and not not coming up to the tipping point, we're, we're at that tipping point. Um, again, not for every territory, but if you look at the Western territories, particularly the UK, Europe, America, um, uh, the, the sort of more, the, the richer nations as it were, um, by most metrics, we've got an exponential growth in EVs. Whether you look at one month against the previous month or one year against the previous year, there's around about something like an exponential growth of EVs coming onto the market. Um, so that tipping point is now. Now, clearly we're at the start of that, um, but it's not going to take long for you know the revolution, for want of a better phrase, to happen. Um, there are things hampering that. The, uh, the silicon supply chain um, is making things very difficult. I was reading, uh, if you want to buy an EV now, it's somewhere between six and 18 months wait time uh, for new EV. So those sorts of things are making it difficult, but you know the technology is there now. It's now about refining it and and making sure that the technology is right for all different segments of car, um, not just whether it's whether it's going to happen or whether it's the right technology. Challenges obviously exist, uh, not only in the supply chain, which is a very unique maybe ex- example of, of right now with outside of everyone's control, but initially EVs really had a big branding problem, didn't they? 
Um, and that was some time ago, but there's still a, a lot of resistance to what needs to change in that space. Uh, they were almost the opposite of what people wanted from their cars, to be able to go uh, and drive for, for ages and ages, fill up a petrol station very quickly and continue to move on. Um, but I think it would be fair to say that the bulk of your career has been on that journey with that process and trying not only to convince OEMs, but other people who are trying to buy the cars or talking about cars, you know, sh shows that potentially have been very much petrol focused and would uh, would persuade a lot of people's opinion in the past. Now, of course, are changing. What would that? What was it like dealing with those difficulties? There's someone on the inside of the industry going, guys, I can just tell you this is going to be the absolute best. Just trust us. It's, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I remember when I first started. So when I left university and I had my sort of first job in in parallel with doing my my doctorate, um, my boss at the time, uh, we were talking about what we were trying to do, and we were um, hybridising a Westfield sports car. So Westfield make small uh, sort of kit build sports cars or factory built sports cars, and we were hybridising it. And um, had a conversation with him. He said, I, "I love it when people tell me you can't do that because I want to prove them wrong." And that, and that's something actually I've taken from that. I still remember the conversation. I've taken that and thought actually, yeah, that there's going to be a lot of people that tell you, you know, this this isn't going to work. And there's a lot of people in the industry who still don't believe it, and they'll, you know, they'll they'll put questions or they'll put information out there that's intentionally bias. And I don't think anyone's no one's trying to hide away from the fact that there are challenges. There are massive challenges in making EVs work. But when you get past that, they just work. It just makes so much more sense. Um, you know, if you wanted to, you know, people talk about the electric um, fires from batteries or electrocution as being risks. You know, if you went to your health and safety department and the internal combustion engine hadn't been built and you said, you know what, I want to design something where I'm going to blow fuel up in in, in the middle of, a, of an aluminium box and it'll make me go forward. They'd say, what, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Um, you know, electric vehicles just make sense in terms of efficiency, use of energy. You know, battery technology is at a point now where they work and you can you can – you can make the distances work in ninety plus percent of the use cases. Um, yeah, so it's 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 been it's been an interesting one. And actually, there's a there was a flip. I think over COVID mm. was a really interesting one. People started seeing less smog about, less cars on the road, reevaluating their relationship to some extent with transport, not needing to go to work um, so much, working from home. And over the last two years or so, there, there's been a massive flip generally, generally in the industry. And that, that's been really good to see that sort of, I wouldn't say I've been evangelising about EVs, but an industry I've been in for the last 15, 16 years, the last couple of years, it's, it's, it's really taken off and that's great. Getting the technology right is one thing, um, but how much does electric transportation need to kind of be met halfway? If we're thinking about charging stations um, or the ability for grid to deal with home charging, um, perhaps even car contributing to um, the grid itself, how important is it to get this right and how far along are we on that journey? We are probably not far along as we need to be. So, I mean, to some extent... Questions like that are a little bit, a uh, little bit misleading because you're assuming there's a problem. There is, is kind of the basis of the question. When, when there, when I think there are challenges with these things, but I don't think there's an insurmountable problem. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, charging stations there probably aren't enough of them. We need to get those. To some extent, that'll be fixed by free market economics needs, supply and demand. Um, but equally, you know, governments are putting huge amounts of money into incentivise these things happening. Um, you know. Things like recycling of batteries, for example, that's often cited as a concern. Um, but actually, the technology exists to do it. We're doing it already. What we haven't quite got is the scale, you know. And these are the challenges. And I think 
the majority of the challenges come from now scaling up to meet mass automotive, which is huge, you know, millions and millions of vehicles um, uh, worldwide as opposed to the sort of hundreds of thousands of electric vehicles there may be. Um, so it's about scaling up from what works now, just about in some instances. And don't get me wrong, if you drive an EV, it's not necessarily the most pleasant experience in the world when you can't get to a charger and it's full or, or whatever else. Um, but change is happening really, really quickly. And we're, we're, we're moving through that. There's, there's huge amounts happening on charging networks. There's huge amount happening on recycling of batteries. Huge amounts on making these things more efficient. You know, I think um, there's a great quote um, from somebody who I can't remember, so I'll probably get it wrong. But they, um, they said, having a large battery is like driving a car with two engines just in case. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're going to get to the point where we don't need a big battery. Yeah, you might occasionally want to do 300 miles, but fine, stop for 15 minutes and charge it up. That, 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 there's a small mindset change that we need. And actually, when you get through those mindset changes, the barriers aren't that great. And it's very rare that you find someone that's gone to an EV and then goes, oh, yeah, I don't like it. I'm going to go back to a, a, an internal combustion engine car. We'll get back to our chat with Dr. Stephen Lambert in just a moment. Spearheaded by automotive, the electrification transformation is sweeping across all mobility industries. IPG5 is McLaren Applied's 800-volt silicon carbide inverter for the next step in electrification, delivering class-leading improvements in efficiency and charging times. The silicon carbide technology drives a step change in efficiency, which leads to a domino effect of downstream benefits that include longer range, enhanced drivability, and lower system costs. The 800-volt architecture enables fast charging at up to twice the speed of conventional 400-volt systems. Utilising over a decade of experience in producing inverters for automotive and top-tier motorsport, McLaren Applied is perfectly positioned to provide sustainable, competitive advantage to the next generation of electric vehicles. To find out more, go to mclarenapplied.com. Now let's get back to our chat with Dr. Stephen Lambert. You mentioned earlier that COVID has changed a lot of the way people are thinking. What's it been like for you to deal with being able to answer these questions? As I said, I mean, being evangelical about, you know, the electric car, and it is absolutely the way and people need to get on board. But what's it been like for you and from the industry point of view, from McLaren Applied, of course, leading the way in a lot of these different technologies and, and of course, having those trying to have those relationships with OEMs and, and everyone else. Has it almost been a blessing in disguise in a lot of ways for people to realise exactly what the future can be, the less smog absolutely, and how cool how cool it is to drive an EV? And everyone says that. When you drive a proper EV for the first time, you think, wow, where does this power come from? It's immediate delivery and it's quick and it could be in a very small hatchback or it could be in a very expensive sports car. You get a very similar kind of feeling of, of adrenaline has it been great for you to be able to have those different conversations yeah it is it's it's and again something you know i've been i've been doing this for, for, for a few years now when you i've driven a few different evs um over the years some some really interesting ones and the variety actually you can get when you do it well the variety you get in the uh, the way you drive the car is really interesting. We did a back in uh, back in about 2010. I did an electric Rolls Royce, for example, and um, when I was working at Lotus, and that was it was a really great example of what you could do with EV technology. We drove back to back the Rolls Royce Phantom at the time and the electric Rolls Royce, and by far and away the nicer car to drive or be driven in, of course, is a Rolls Royce, <laughs> was the EV. 
but the problem was it was still ten plus years ahead of ahead of the market. But you you could just see the the benefits. You know, we had a, a chauffeuring mode on it, which um, basically means you get more regen when you pull pull off the accelerator. But it meant it just had such a smooth ride compared to the eight-speed gearbox or whatever it was, or six-speed gearbox in the uh, um, in the Rolls-Royce. So it's it's good now seeing those things starting to come through. And, you know, if you drive EVs today, some are better than others. Some have done it better than others. Yeah. Um, but but that, that, that'll change and it'll improve over, over the next five or ten years or so. And um, they're, they're only going to get better. You know, we're right at the beginning of that development cycle. What's been your favourite moment um, for you to overcome with all of the challenges that you've kind of been, been describing? Has there been a, a moment of technological, you know, <laughs> aha moment? Um, or is there something in particular that comes to mind? Um I had a, had a couple of years in, in Formula 1. I worked in McLaren Racing for a couple of years and we, we, we developed uh, some battery technology um, that went into the uh, the engine, uh, the partnership with Honda. And so my claim to fame in uh, Formula 1 is that I was part of the worst performing McLaren <laughs> Formula 1 team in history. And it was, it was, pretty, uh, it was pretty tough. Um, but actually seeing McLaren Racing getting through that and changing as a team making sure that they they, they made the right decisions and getting through that has been been quite good being being part of the McLaren family of course um, and seeing that happen has been quite rewarding um, other things I talked about the the Lotus um, sorry the Rolls-Royce did a Lotus that was uh, that was an amazing project um, also getting the, the hybrid Westfield I talked about getting to drive that up the hill at uh, Goodwood mm-hmm. uh, when I had that there was good fun there's been Obviously, and we were speaking about this substantial movement now, and yes, thanks to COVID, now there's more of an awareness about it. Is there a risk, talking about the challenge, is there a risk that there's potential for the free market to slow down the progression of electric vehicles when different OEMs are going to be doing different things and trying to figure out a solution? Or do you see, which would traditionally have been any kind of way where one company wants to get up over another one? Or is it because there is such a big environmental and sustainability impact driving this big change that you see companies coming more together? I think it's a bit of both. I think there's there's the environmental sustainability side of things. But, you know, let's be honest, a lot of companies don't do things just because they're environmental or sustainable um there's there's got to be a commercial aspect to it what's nice is that we're seeing that pull from the market we're seeing people want to buy them we're seeing six to 18 month wait times on vehicles you know it's not the 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 market needs to catch up now with the demand and that and that's the problem and so you know if demand's there that will be overcome in some way. It might take a year or two, but that will be overcome and it may swing back the other way in a couple of years but we're definitely on the right trajectory so and the other thing I think as well, when you when you talk about, it, I think we're, we're we're getting into the details now. The EVs, I think, it really again, some people disagree, but EVs are the future of, of automotive. And what we're talking about now is the difference between a normally aspirated engine or a turbocharged engine or a supercharged engine. You know, it doesn't really affect the vehicle in terms of how you get in it, how you drive it, that sort of thing. It's more the the difference in the technology under the hood. So it might be that you talk about the difference between an 800-volt and a 400-volt charging system because that allows you to fast charge. That has benefits because it, it decreases waiting time and, and that sort of thing. Um, or silicon carbide versus IGBT in your power electronics. These aren't things that the average consumer knows about at the moment. Some clued up people will do. Um, but I think they're things that are going to start to become 
more public and more relevant as more EVs come onto the market and there's more competition. You mentioned earlier we're at a bit of a tipping point. We're not just approaching it, we're kind of hitting that tipping point now when it comes to the adoption of new technologies for a greener future. Um, other times it feels like we're not moving fast enough when it comes to moving in the EMAT that direction. How do you say it? I mean, I guess there's a question you could say with the, the looming climate um, uh, scenario that we're in is can we can we go fast enough? You know, um, it's, it's very easy to stick your head in the sand, but, you know, we really have to push on getting to net zero. Um, but, but I do think, uh, personally, I think the free, free markets will allow things to happen quite quickly and, and as soon as the market pool is there which is, which is where we are which is why I think we're at that tipping point the market will respond to it and we'll, we'll get there so it's lagging a little bit um, but I think it's going to happen very quickly certainly if you look at by by 2030 you know most people will be buying EVs you know 90 something percent or whatever it is by 2025 it'll be much more normal you know you're going to see a lot of change happen in the next three to three to five years you mentioned earlier just in terms of, I suppose, that mindset shift for some people when it comes to just how they think about electric vehicles as well. Is there anything that's not being done at the moment that you think could help to increase that that shift to take place? Yeah, so I personally, going, going back to sort of the, the, the quote of um, having two engines, um, having having smaller batteries and faster charging is, is the way forward. And we're slowly seeing, seeing that happen. Um, the reason being, actually... Most people who drive a car do, and there's numerous studies, but something like 30 miles a day, something like that. You don't need a big battery. But people want to be able to drive a long distance if they want to. So actually, the the, the logical next step in that is a small battery, fast charge. That technology exists. You've got it in the Porsche Taycan. You've got it in the Hyundai Ionic 5, the 800-volt charging, and in particular in the Ionic 5, the silicon carbide inverter, to, to help with that efficiency. Um, you know, you can charge your car in 15 minutes. Um, and so if you then did want to go and do a 2,000-mile drive, you can do that, and you stop every 300 miles, and you charge in 15 minutes. You know, most people want to stop in that sort of time anyway. Mm. You know, so it's not a, it, 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 it's not a big deal. And so... I think that's the way the market's going to go, and that's what people need to get their head around. I mean, personally, I um, um, I, I had a flight cancelled a few weeks ago going on holiday and ended up uh, taking my car down to the south of France because the flight was cancelled. I thought, you know what, I couldn't do this if I had an EV because it would just take that much longer. I'd have to find out where to charge it, et cetera, et cetera. But I actually think, well, actually, if I had something that I could charge quickly – Actually, I'm less worried about that. As long as the infrastructure is in place, again, that, that's the other other challenge. But as long as you can charge quickly, um, those problems tend to tend to fall away. And actually, we stopped. You know, we stopped every few hours uh, on the drive down and got got a bite to eat. There's plenty of time to do that charging. You just just got to get through that mindset change. Um, and even me, you know, I've I've been in the industry to say 15, 16 years. There's still this mindset change to get to get through, so it's not not a not a simple thing. Yeah, there's a there's a funny emotional connection I think that we haven't really quite acknowledged yet when it comes to people adopting those. But it's, it's, it's a freedom thing, isn't it? People see their car, you get your car at 17 or 18 or your license or whatever, and it's freedom. And then people are saying, well, actually, you're not quite as free as you want because you can't go as far, and it'll take you longer to get there. I can understand it completely. Part of McLaren Applied is pushing and trying to get to pioneer this technology and try and get it out sooner rather than later. Absolutely. What's a 
great example right now of the work that you're doing in the automotive space. So in the automotive space, we spent the last couple of years really focusing on what we do best. Um, we're a very data-driven company. We, we make decisions based on data. And so we, we we used to do everything. We used to do the batteries, used to do in, um, DC-DC converters, motors. Now we've really focused in on one product where we can provide the most value, and that's um, it's in the public domain. That's IPG5, our 800 volt silicon carbide inverter. Spent the last couple of years developing it. We launched it earlier this year, um, and, and it kind of aligned with some of the stuff I said earlier in terms of um, the batteries kind of been the low hanging fruit that's been the, the focus of development for the last few years. Um, but the 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 battery technology is there now. There, there are going to be some gains, but they'll be more marginal. Um, looking at the rest of the drivetrain, that's kind of the heart of the vehicle now. That's where a lot of the integration challenges are. Um, the drivability side of things comes from that, that drivetrain. We've got a huge amount of experience in working in Formula 1 and Formula E on that side. Um, and so we've bought a product out, our, our 800 volt silicon carbide inverter that addresses those challenges. And we, we're, we're planning to and hoping to get into uh, mainstream automotive vehicles as soon as possible. It's interesting from the element of sustainability too, because driving this technological advance means that other areas of cars like cooling systems and everything else can be decreased. How important though is that sustainability element in all of the work that you do here? It's, it's really interesting. So, so from from there's two aspects to this. One is how important is it to us, um, and clearly it is it is very important. Um, we spend a lot of time looking at where we get materials from, what sort of embedded carbon there is in those materials, how we can make it more efficient. Are we doing this in the right way? You know, down to where where's our manufacturing going to be? Is that close to where our customers are going to be? So they're not shipping these things all the way across the world. The other side of it is, of course, our customers, the OEMs. They, it's really interesting. They have varying degrees of importance they put on um, the sustainability side of it. Some, some of them see it as a core value of their offering um, and are really, really keen, keen on it and they push on it. Um, some, you know, some, some may see a bit more of a, okay, well, we can push that down to our supply chain um, and we've answered that question. Um, of course, it's important, but it's interesting seeing the difference in some OEMs to others. But I think they're all catching up with it now. They're all, they're all getting there and catching up. Where do you see the future then? McLaren Applied obviously is pioneering, pushing very, very hard, and you're trying to get involved with OEMs, which is fantastic. How integral then is McLaren Applied in your mind, noting the change that you've seen through all of your professional career and especially getting your doctorate as well? Where do you see this business, this brand in the future? So one, one of the things McLaren Applied isn't going to become is is a bulk manufacturer of things. We're not, you know, we're, we're not going to do commodity items. We've got to be pushing technology all of the way. So we believe we're doing that with, with the uh, 800 volt silicon carbide inverter. Um, and we've got to keep doing that. And we've got some plans on, on how we're going to keep doing that. Um, but absolutely, you know, it's got to be the latest technology. It's got to be the, the most competitive out there, the, the best performing out there, whether that be performance in terms of weight, in terms of efficiency, or in all honesty, in terms of price. You know, automotive is a very cost conscious market. We've, we've got to be cost competitive, but have all those other advantages. And that brings a challenge and sort of back, back to sort of when I started early in my career, I like a challenge. I'd like someone to say, you know, that that's not possible. Right, okay, well, let's let's work out if it is or not. Well, there's plenty of possibilities. That is absolutely true. One last thing that uh, I was very surprised with is, and I mentioned this to, to Nick Fry earlier, it was interesting if in my mind if I pull apart a race car, but now if I pull apart a lot of other cars or aeroplanes or anything, I'm going to find a McLaren applied logo underneath the skin somewhere. So the brand is 
at the forefront in so many different industries, of course, you're talking about electrification and, and automotive, but as a whole, McLaren Applied is so much more significant and probably the point that a lot of our listeners wouldn't realize just what they're using that you might even be involved in what they drive or have even flown around the country in. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I one of the difficult things we have is not being able to talk too much about these things. Mm. And actually, you know, you're absolutely right, but you'd have to look quite hard for there to be a logo on there because it may be in a it may be in a competitor's vehicle that won't want their logo there. But absolutely right, there's planes going around with McLaren applied uh, components inside. There's there's cars going around with them. There's uh, trains going around with McLaren applied technology inside. It's uh, it's a great place to work in that sense. What is your favourite part about working for McLaren applied? I think it's the constant challenge. I think we're constantly being challenged. Um, and particularly, we, 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 we spun out from the McLaren Group recently last year. Um, we've got some great new investors. And they're, they're really pushing us and they're challenging us. But back to your point about how can we get McLaren applied into more of these applications? How can we grow what we're doing? Um, you know, we, we, we come back with a great idea and they're saying, yep, that's great. How can you do more? You know, and that, that, that type of relationship, that type of push is, is really rewarding. And a lot of other people now going through similar times in university as you 15, 16 years ago would be wondering, what is the next challenge? How do I get in, involved in this, in this understanding the electrification, the future, or maybe hydrogen, whatever it is? What kind of advice would you give to people wanting to go down a similar path to you? I think the the obvious one has got to be understanding electronics. I think you probably you, you can't do you can't go and do a mechanical design degree these days um and expect to go into automotive without knowing a little bit about electronics even if mechanical design is still relevant of course but you've got to understand what it is you're packaging um you know going away and learning about you know frankly going away and learning about how turbos work or engines work or transmissions work transmissions still relevant but Learning about these things is is less relevant. You've got to have an understanding of electronics, even if it's how a motor works and how it might be built up or what some of the sort of components might be in an inverter or in a battery, for example, the cells and that sort of thing. Um, there's a massive amount of mechanical engineering in there, for example, but you've got to understand how it all goes together um, on the electronic side. And, you know, some of my roles over the, over the last, last uh, 10 years or so have been around working with existing teams and getting them up to speed with what, what they need to understand what the differences in designing something are. Um, of course, going into electronics or software, you know, something like 60% of the value of a car is going to be in software soon. Um, so you know, software is another big part of it. So there's a lot more routes in than there used to be. Um, so that's good. But the traditional routes may be less relevant unless you can, can make it relevant. Well, there's lots of routes. <laughs> Following on from that question in terms of what advice you might have had for other people, is there any advice that you've received that's kind of shaped your career or decisions you've made along the way? I think uh, some, something I remember from actually when I was at school was a teacher telling me, you know, don't think you can't do anything because someone else is better than you. It just means you have to put more effort in. Um, and that's something, again, that um, I've, I've used as I've sort of gone through my career is actually – you know, within reason, anything is possible. It's just about how much hard work you can put in. Now, you can't obviously account for everything, but, you know, if you put that hard work in, then uh, uh, good things should happen, hopefully. Very wise words to end on by the sounds of things. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Stephen Lamb, thank you so much. And, of course, if you're listening to this and you are interested in electrification or motive or anything else, there are a lot of jobs going at McLaren Applied right now. You can come and listen and learn from Stephen and the whole team uh, I'm sure more information on the website, but thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
massive thank you to Dr. Stephen Lambert for that very, very awesome and interesting chat, of course. Freya, what an absolute legend of a human being. He is. I was a bit disappointed to hear that he hadn't electrified anything recently, but... uh, (laughs) But a fantastic discussion nonetheless. Uh, Me too, but uh, it's time to fix that, isn't there, of course. But before then, our next episode is all about Internet of Things. Ash, Thomas, Nikhil, you get to hear a chat with all three of them. Can't wait. That's the next episode, Freya, on Inside McLaren Applied. See you then, James. 